And if you were here with us last week, you remember we, we looked, at, we were in the book of Numbers at that time, but we, we were reminded that the greater Exodus narrative that we find in the first five books of, of the Bible, the Torah, is our story. That is, it is one of deliverance or enslavement, deliverance, and a journey toward rest. So it has everything to do with where we were, where we are, and where we are going. And so as I thought about you know, just New Year's and thinking about who we are as a people and moving forward, um, I wanted to look at the issue of, of worship, just taking time to pause and reflect about what it is we do. Because we've, we've talked a lot about how important this issue is to us as we've sort of waded the waters of this pandemic. Uh, that, that worship is essential, that it is something that is, that is not optional for the believer. It's something we need as we gather together and as we come under the preaching of the Word of God to sing His praises in response to His grace and mercy t- toward us in Christ. So as you think about this, you just think about worship in general, you'll, and you ask yourself the question, why is it that you can go to any given church, and I'll say any given evangelical church for our purposes here, and find that the expressions of worship are so varied. And, and this, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it should cause us to maybe ask, what, what are the nuts and bolts of worship? What makes worship what it claims to be, this communion that we have with God? And what are the varied parts of that that are indeed essential as we gather Together and, and Scripture is replete with references to worship that help us understand exactly what it is. You come to Hosea 6.6, 6, and we read this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Yet we find, and we find in the, in the book we're in today, it deals heavily with it. These things that God says he does not require are in the law. So we go, okay, well, what is the essence of worship then? And you get to Isaiah 29 and verse 13, and the Lord says this, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, I will, and he goes on to talk about how he will act toward them to refocus them and draw them to himself. So we learn this, worship. what, what worship is not? I would say this, it is not gaining favor with God or an obligation to appease God. That's, that's a pagan understanding of worship. And here's where it may get a little uncomfortable for us. Worship is not entertainment, recharging, or spiritual self, self-affirmation. That is a decidedly American view of worship. So, so what is it? How does the, the Word of God describe it for us? In both, both the, the Hebrew and the Greek word groups that, that center around this subject fall into two categories. And the first is this. It is one of service or ministering. And the second group deals with honoring, falling down before, or literally kissing toward. So what, what does that mean if we boil it down? Well, it tells us that worship is chiefly two things. It is, it is action and adoration. So I want to give us a, a working definition of what worship is, and then we'll work through the passage today. Because this is sort of the premise where we're we're coming from. And this is not my definition. I wish I was smart enough to come up with this definition, but this is a definition from a beloved Old Testament professor of mine, Daniel Block. And he said this, true worship involves acts of adoration, 
submission, and honor to God as sovereign creator, redeemer, and sustainer of all things that flow from an inward disposition of love from the worshiper and are in response to God's grace and mercy in Christ and are informed by his gracious self-revelation and therefore are in accordance with his will. I get that that's a, that's a long, and I probably should have put it up there for you, but it would have taken you too long to write it down anyway. But that's a very thorough definition that deals with who we are worshiping, why we worship, how we are able to worship, and what guides our worship. So we're going to work under the title this morning of a line from the hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hands I bring. And it's a tale of two different flames that we see in the passage we'll look at today. So the premises that we keep in mind are that humans were created to worship, and indeed they do worship. There's no, there's no choice there. We reverence what we revere. We adore what we chiefly hold as valuable. We worship. We're created to do that, and so it is a natural response to us. The question always is, what or who do we worship? And the second is this. All sin is an expression of idolatry, and therefore all sin is a worship problem. That's why the topic is so important to truly understand and not just float through worship, to really think about what we do when we gather together. And, you know, you could say, well, there, there is the issue of corporate worship, which we engage in today, and there's the issue of, of individual private worship, which we engage in daily. And both of those things are informed by what we're going to see here this morning. So as you, we get to Leviticus chapter 9 in the, in the last part of it there. Remember, we've, you work through the Exodus narrative to get here. So back in Exodus 19... We find the people of the Lord, we find the Hebrews having been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, delivered from Egypt, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And then in Exodus 20, Moses receives the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, Moses is told to come up higher by himself, and that's when the people get antsy. That's when they tell Aaron, what has happened to this man? You make us something that we can worship. And then you get to Exodus 32, and you have the golden calf incident, which we looked at last week, sort of informed where we were. And then in Exodus 40, which we also last week, there is the, the first erecting of the tabernacle. So then you get into the book of Leviticus, which deals heavily with Aaron and his sons, the tribe of Levi, therefore the, the book gets its name Leviticus, and deals with the way of access to God and the way of living before him. So the issues of atonement and holiness, how the people approach God, and then how they live in response to him. And so... When you get to chapter 9, you find Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, carefully following the instruction of the Lord to make sacrifice and make offering for themselves and then for the people. So that's the context we come into. But what's interesting is you have to remember that when you read through the first part of chapter 9, Nadab and Abihu, who will become central to what we talk about today, are assisting their father and Moses. They are aware of the command of God and what is required of them and what they need to do. So that's very important, as we'll see in just a moment. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 22 of Leviticus chapter 9, and read down to verse 3 of chapter 10. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. 
And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, now I went right into that because that chapter break is unfortunate, as we'll see in a moment. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, and some of your virgins may say strange, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You think about how difficult that was. So the heart of the passage is is the absolute necessity of what I would call gospel-centered Worship, Because in the Old Testament, the absolute foundation and core of worship is the issue of sacrifice. In the New Testament, the absolute core and foundation of worship is sacrifice. Very important. Nothing has changed there centrally. So we may be surprised that, that not, not all offerings of worship are accepted. In fact, this passage shows us, as we have just read, that many are outright rejected. And what we will find from this passage is that the reason any act of worship is accepted or rejected is that issue of gospel-centeredness. Now, it doesn't take long at all in Scripture to find very clearly aspects and acts of worship that are rejected. You come to the first one in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Verses 3 through 5 We read, so it came about that in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then you read in Amos chapter 5. This is strong language. I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I'm going to even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? O house of Israel... You also carried along Sikuth, your king, and Kayun, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Isaiah 1, 14 and 15. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary and weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And this is not just an Old Testament issue. But you remember in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, when offerings were being brought and laid at the feet of the disciples that that it could be dispersed among those who were in need. And Ananias and Sapphira did something that they were completely within their right to do, which Peter makes clear. 
but they presented themselves wrong and were seeking glory for themselves. And what happened? A quick deliverance. They were killed immediately. Well, separately, but immediately in their own right. So, even in these examples, offerings and sacrifice are made, but obviously we see that it was not gospel-centered. Something was lacking, something was deficient in these offerings of worship, and they were rejected. So, the problem with, with all of these examples is that the sacrifice was not accompanied by what we saw last week, obedience. There was no evidence that they were approaching God on the merit of sacrifice as an atoning for their sin because they continued to live in it or demonstrated it right at the moment of worship. Thus, it was not centered on the gospel, on the atoning sacrifice for sin. So here, as we've read today, we have two very clear pictures of worship, and they are very similar in just about every single way, save that one was, was accepted and one was horrifically rejected. So in each of them, you have two men approaching God, two men offering what seems to be worship, two instances of the fire of God appearing, and here it is, two instances of the glory of God being displayed by consuming. So in one, God displays his glory with the pleasure of the sacrifice, and in one, God displays his glory in judgment. He does that. So here's the truth we see and that we neglect to our demise. In Deuteronomy, the Lord had said this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And the author of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews 12. If you remember our, our working definition of worship, acts of adoration and submission, of homage toward God as the sovereign creator redeemer, and sustainer of all things that come as a response to his mercy and grace in Christ to us and are in accordance with his will. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Verses 28 and 29, he says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, those, those acts of submission and homage and service, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." In other words, this is still a relevant issue in our worship. To remember who God is, that he is a consuming fire. So the question is that we have to answer today is, is on what basis do we see these two groups of men approaching God? Moses and Aaron in one case, and Nadab and Abihu in the other. So the first issue is acceptable worship. That's what we see in verses 22 through 24. This is a clear display of careful obedience. So Moses and Aaron discharging the duties that God had placed before them and on behalf of the people, for themselves and on behalf of the people. And foundational to this scene is our understanding the necessity of sacrifice. And we've said this several times, that it's no small thing for the people of God to gather together and come into his presence. The offering is consumed here. And this is not like the pagan nations who would feed their gods because they were hungry or, or satisfying the urges of capricious anger on behalf of their gods. But this was the work of atoning for sin, for the worshipers being able to draw close without being killed, the, the difficulty in worship. So this is God's gracious provision to commune with his people. Did you notice when we read those verses at the end of chapter 9 how often the people are mentioned? 
Verse 22, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron bless the people. Again in verse 23, the glory of the Lord appears to the people. And in verse 24, the people cry out and fall down on their faces. Because this is about communion. It is, it is chiefly about God and his glory, but his condescending to us to commune with us. So on what basis did Moses and Aaron approach God? We see here very clearly that it's, it's atonement for sin. Aaron's first act as priest in chapter 9 was to make atonement for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. It has everything to do with the gospel. Aaron's offerings were gospel-centered because he realized that he had to trust in God's anger being satisfied based on what he was doing as he approached him. And note clearly that it was after the sacrifice and offerings of verse 22 that Moses and Aaron then go into the newly erected tabernacle in verse 23. Sacrifice always is the basis for communion. That's why I said it's, it's, it's not just an Old Testament issue. It's also a New Testament issue. We're not told what goes on inside the tent in that private meeting, but we're told that they go in there and the, and the, Lord, the glory of the Lord appears to the people. So look in verse 24. I mean, this is the culmination of the appearing of the glory of the Lord, a visible manifestation of the acceptance of what Aaron had done on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. So in this case, fire comes out from the tent of meeting to the altar that the people were standing before. I mean, you have to get this scene. And it consumes the burnt offering and the fat pieces that Aaron had previously arranged on the altar. So the comparison here is that we have to keep in mind that in this instance, fire from the Lord comes out and consumes the offering. In the next instance, fire from the Lord comes out and consumes the offerer. Radically different because of what was done and how it was done. And again, when we look at Nadab and Abihu, we'll see that because those are essential questions we have to ask ourselves. So... But what the fire from the Lord, what, what does that represent? Well, here, chiefly, and, and what gives us the opportunity to rejoice is it shows that the wrath of God is turned from the offerer to the offering. It consumes that which is being offered. And it's, it's a picture of a covenant meal. I said, you know, the worshipers are not feeding God, but God coming out and cons- the glory coming out and consuming that offering is a picture of God eating with his people. It's a covenant meal together. So it symbolizes the communion he has with them. And that's why they are there. That's why we gather together, not just... We, we long for that communion with one another, which we desperately need, and I think this year has highlighted that for us. We need that communion because everyone in here would confess that it's been radically different since the beginning of 2020. And I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You miss it. You miss what it used to be. But what keeps us communing with one another and, and keeps us sustained in this time is the communion we seek with God. And that comes only on the basis of sacrifice. So in verse 24, I mean, I, this is not comical, but in some sense, you, you, if you think about what happened in that moment, I mean, how... How startled would they have been to see this take place? And we're told that the people who 
who back in Exodus begged Moses, you speak to us, but don't let the fire that's scorching the top of that mountain speak to us because we can't take it. And now they see that fire come out right in front of them and consume what's on that altar and they scream and fall down. Now, some have said that this was a shout of joy. Puritan Matthew Henry said that these people were highlighting highest joy and lowest humility, but I don't think that's the whole picture. I think this is, is, is a right fear and awe of what's taking place because they see the power and the glory of God, and that's never something that we take lightly. So, how, But how do we experience that today? How, how is it that we experience the display of God's glory now? Because just like last week, there are certain things that that we don't see and experience this side of the cross like the Hebrews did. These, these very powerful visual, visual manifestations. So how do we experience that same thing? Because God has not changed. His glory is still lethal outside of Christ. So how do we experience the fire of God? It's interesting that the New Testament often associates fire with the Holy Spirit that which indwells the believer. I mean, Jesus is, is said to, to, to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Acts chapter 2, we see a manifestation of tongues of fire settling on the people as the Spirit falls down. So we know that our worship is consumed today when there's a manifestation of the fire of God by His Spirit in our hearts consuming our offering of praise. We see it in how we worship Causes the same, it should cause the same reaction in us of reverent fear, deepest joy, and a compulsion to get on our faces before this consuming fire. Joy because we realize that the wrath has turned from us to his sacrifice, his son. So that's acceptable worship based solely on the merit of Christ and his atoning work for our sin that allows us to come together and press in and commune with God. But watch. Now, I said this was a, there's an unfortunate chapter break here in our English Bibles because there are no chapter breaks in the original languages. Because when you get to chapter 10, and this is where we see detestable worship. And I call it detestable based on what God does in response to it. So the chapter break here sort of kicks us off the feeling that this is the same continuing narrative. Because the word that we have translated there now can legitimately, legitimately be translated in Hebrew as and. So you would read it like, when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took their censer and, the, and put fire in it and incense. So it's the same scene. One gets the sense that as the people are on their, on their faces, Nadab and Abihu kind of look at each other and go, let's do this. Why? That's only conjecture. But what we are told is that they do something that is outright rejected. So the question for them is the same as for Moses and Aaron. On what basis did Nadab and Abihu approach God? This is the problem. Whereas we've seen that acceptable worship is only gospel-centered, here it must not be the case. It is, it is terribly deficient and lacking in that area. So Nabon and Abihu were consecrated as priests. They were in the Levitical line. They were Aaron's sons. They had been assisting him, yet they are exterminated with extreme prejudice. So 
That's telling us something. Again, we're given these stories and pointed to this narrative for our benefit. So God is stating something very clearly in it. So, again, while the people were on their faces, it seems that Nadab and Abihu said, we, we need to do this. They grabbed their fire pans, they strut into the holy place, and offering, they offer incense without any, any direction or command from the Lord. The same scene. So, I, I think there are four things here that tell us what is characteristic of worship that is not gospel-centered. And when I think about these, for me, I can see my guilt from time to time, in these things. Because I would say number one is this, pride. The first thing we see with Nadab and Abihu is the issue of pride. Nadab and Abihu assumed that they could enter into worship based on what they thought was acceptable and by virtue of their role as priests. The thing that is lacking is clear direction, a command from the Lord. They're, they're not biting by what the reformers would call the regulative principle. That's another topic for another day. But this was clearly not described or prescribed by God for them to come in and do what they did. And that's an issue of pride. Because the only explanation is, is that in their minds, whatever they do would be acceptable and that God would be glad to receive it because of who they are. I mean, after all, Daddy is... The high priest. We are his sons. We're in the line that's been set apart in all of the tribes to do this work. And so we can therefore do this work. The second thing I would say is this. It's familiarity. Because of who they were, because of what they had just been doing, because of the instruction they had seen their father receive and watched him do it perfectly, they thought that they knew the outward trappings well enough to do it. They knew how to use a fire pan. They knew where the incense was. They knew what part of worship was necessary to offer this, what will become known as strange fire. They knew all of this, but what was lacking was a concern for what God required from them in that moment. Strange fire. It means common. This is likely not the fire that came from that shot out from the, the presence of the, the, the Lord onto the altar and lit it up, they got it from somewhere else. And they simply walk in. And what seemed acceptable to them was not acceptable, but it, which causes us to ask the question, who is worship to be acceptable to? And I am so guilty of making it about being acceptable to me. And I, would, I dare say that all of us have been there rather than being concerned chiefly with what honors God and fuels my love for Him and sanctifies me in the process and glorifies Him through me. The third thing I would say is this, haste. Everybody said this was the same scene. They immediately strut in to the holy place with their fire pans. Very quickly, not, not thinking about what was taking place in the moment. And how many of us have been hasty in worship? I mean, we just sort of feel like, well, I've got things i got to do today. Let's get this over with. Let me get out of here. We can be very hasty 
I know I can. And the fourth thing I would say is this, and, and maybe most importantly, is, is just disregard. I mean, they were literally playing with fire here. They did not calculate the seriousness of what it meant to go in and stand before the Lord, nor at what cost communion takes place. So their minds were not focused on, they had disregarded why they would even be able to stand before this holy God. And I experience disregard when I let other things press in and I forget that it is only because of Christ and His finished work on my behalf that I can even gather together with you here and sing His praise without fear of judgment, without heaping up strange fire in my censer. So we must be careful. Well, what does all this mean? Do these things characterize our worship from time to time? If our worship is not gospel-centered, if we find ourselves doing these things, four things, then yes. Coming in any way other than the mindset of conscious dependency upon Christ and His finished work is the height of pride, familiarity, haste, and disregard. This is why we must say with Paul, in Galatians 6 and verse 14, he says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May it never be that anything I would bring in here would be anything other than that conscious dependency upon Him. That it being the reason why I rejoice in worship. Because look what happens in verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Why did the Lord deal so harshly and quickly without opportunity for repentance? Look, that's not our, that's not our place to ask that question, is it? But still, it pops up. Why here? Because we see other instances. I mean, we, we, we oftentimes see the Lord act quickly in judgment, and, and oftentimes we see Him act with great patience and mercy. So we say, well, why such, in this instance, such a quick act of judgment on these people? Well, the Lord, even if you think back to our, our example in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, the same question comes up there. Very quick, why do they do that? And in both cases, what you see is the Lord has established communion with his people very carefully. And he spelled it out and how it would take place, and he would not overlook even the slightest disregard of this. And again, this is why I say this was done and then written down for our benefit. Nadab and Abihu become an example to those who would come after them. And there's a, there's a built-in frustration with the sacrificial system as a whole anyway. I mean, the reason it exists, the reason the priesthood exists, remember, is because it assumes there's a breach between God and man, that things aren't okay, that we just can't say, hey, I'm going to go and stand before God. The author of Hebrews makes that clear in Hebrews 9 and 10. He says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That's why they're offered over and over and over again. But our sacrifice, the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, was offered once for all, and He sat down as our high priest. The work's done. It's finished. So 
To continue to come before the Lord under the pretense of worship without being in Christ is to heap up that strange fire. And it will cause the fire of the Lord to consume you. And that sounds harsh. And it won't look like this, likely. But it will be just as real. See, the difference in both of these pictures of worship is that in one, the offering of worship was consumed. In the other, the one's offering, the worship was consumed. But in both cases... The fire of God was manifest and did display His glory. Watch. This this last verse that we read is what's amazing to me. I mean, it's all amazing to me, but when you put yourself in Aaron's shoes, if you know what Moses recalls to Aaron, this is the daddy of these two boys. He says, this is what the Lord has said. I mean, this just took place, and you get the picture of Moses sort of Pulling Aaron close and saying, this is what the Lord has said. I will be treated or I will show myself as holy. I will be honored. He's telling him, make no mistake about it. This is, this is not something that, Aaron, you, you can be mad about and say this shouldn't have happened. And what does Aaron do? Puts his hand over his mouth. Says nothing. Because he realizes there's nothing to say. God has done nothing wrong. There's no accusation that can be leveled against God here. Because his chief concern is the display of his glory. And God will demonstrate his holiness in our offerings of worship. He will either be glorified by us or upon us. His glory will be displayed either by our obedience or his imposition. And you know, and when you talk like this... And, it's, it's not an issue of getting worship to be something you fearfully do. But it's to remember what Nadab and Abihu did not remember. To, to consider the weight of what it is we gather to do. What, to consider the weight of what in all other ways and means has become very familiar and easy for us. And if we try to peel off those things that that make it familiar and easy and comfortable for us, then we start to get a sense of, this is a big deal. We gather together. And we, we join our hearts and our voices in praise to God for what He has done. And I'll tell you guys, I, I'm probably one of the chief offenders that, that sometimes just sings the songs and like, oh... Can we, can we get to this point or this point? I mean, it just happens. But that's on me, no one else. It needs to be on us to consider what it is we're singing. And, 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 and Stephen would tell you, this, this is why what we sing is so important. Because what we sing is formative. When we sing, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. And it forms our theology in a way maybe more significant than we realize. That's why it's important. So we have to consider the weight of what we do when we gather together for worship. And so though we we don't worship in the context that Nadab and Abihu attempted it, and therefore we don't see quick extermination of detestable worship, God will set all things right. There will come a day when things are set right, and detestable worship is revealed and acceptable worship is revealed. 
So I, I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Writing to the church there, he said, In accordance to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which, is, which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, here's where he gets down to what we're saying. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. That's written to believers. So that's our proof that this issue is relevant for us today. And, and that also shows that it's, not, that it's beyond just what we gather to do in this room, but it's how we live the entirety of our lives. So how do we know that in our individual lives, our worship is gospel-centered? Looking back, back at all those examples from the Old Testament, it must be accompanied by obedience. It must be based on the finished sacrifice of Christ. For our sin. If you would engage in acceptable worship, this must be the genuine cry of your heart. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is gospel centered worship. We bring nothing but our need to commune with God and depend on His provision for that to take place. You may be here this morning and you're simply not a believer in Christ. Never come to him in repentance and faith. The good news of the gospel that we've I've been saying, worship must be gospel-centered. It must be gospel-centered. Well, what does that mean? It means it's the good news of God having made provision for our sin in his son, a once-for-all sacrifice to take care of that which has absolutely torn us from the presence of God and keeps us away. That Christ has died for sin died, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, to bring us to God, to undo the biggest problem that we have, the absolute monster that is on our back, is that apart from Christ, we are separate, separated from God. Christ came to deal with that. The once-for-all sacrifice has been slain, and that sacrifice is our only boast. That's what makes worship acceptable. Would you pray with me? Father, I realize that um, a message like this can be heavy. Not a lot of joking, not a lot of uh, anecdotes. Father, we do confess that there, there are things in Scripture that we need to, to look at and consider and let hit us hard. And that is my only prayer is that you give us eyes to see what it is we need to learn and to take in from, from such graphic examples of worship from this text. And Father, we confess that this is written down for our benefit, and we give you great thanks that in Christ we can come to you freely without a dreadful fear but with a reverent awe. 
Father, guide us in all we do. May our expressions of worship as we enter into a new year and look forward to the continuing gathering together with one another to seek your face, to be sanctified by your word, to be formed by the praises we would sing to you by the power of your spirit. Father, help us to be conscious of the weight of what we do and to truly rejoice in this new year that you would make us look more and more like your son. For it's in his name that we pray this morning, Lord. Amen. Stephen is